Hi, I'm Shari Tishman. And I'm David Perkins. We are delighted to be back with you for the third season of Thinkability. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. And a special hello to all our regular listeners. We're very glad you're back. Today, we're going to start our first episode of the season with a topic we're calling Inquiry versus Advocacy. And we're going to switch up our usual conversational format a little bit. For most of the episode, I'm going to interview Dave. I'll probably jump in with a few ideas here and there, but mainly I'm going to take the role of interviewer because, as it happens, Many of the key ideas around the theme of inquiry versus advocacy come from a very cool book that Dave recently published. The book is called Surfing on Quicksand, Navigating a World of Information, Opinion, and Spin. You can find it on Amazon, and it's really a very interesting exploration of how to navigate the polarized viewpoints that seem all too common these days. So Dave, let's get started. Tell us about the theme of inquiry versus advocacy. Well, it's pretty common sense. We can think of inquiry and advocacy as different styles of tackling an issue. Mm, let's start with inquiry. Say there's some issue X. I may have some initial leaning on the issue. Even so, in exploring X further and in sharing my ideas with others, I'm asking questions like this. Well, what's the evidence? What are the reasons pro and con? How compelling are they? What viewpoints am I missing out on that maybe I should take into account? Okay. I like that sound of inquiry. How about an example? Oh, okay, sure. You know, there are a lot of hot button issues in the air right now. They don't make great examples because many people already have strong positions. So let's just pick something where most people probably don't have much of a position. Say, is there, or more likely, was there life on Mars? Not intelligent life, just life of some sort. Say I'm exploring this out of curiosity. It comes up in the news now and then. I'm asking, how could we tell? Especially about whether there was life in the deep past. I might wonder if we have any direct evidence like fossils yet. The answer to that seems to be no. Not yet, but after all, we only have the Mars rovers and their limited powers. Okay, but then I might ask, what do we know about conditions on Mars millions of years ago? And there, we do know some things. There are several signs that there was surface water, and that's critical for enabling life as we know it. So that's a plus. Hmm. And just to add to the inquiry, you could also ask, what do we know about how primitive life gets started anywhere on Earth or anywhere else? Yeah, the answer is there are all sorts of theories. I've read a little bit about them, again, out of curiosity. The thing is, none of them come close to saying that life is guaranteed to get started, even under favorable conditions. So that doesn't add anything one way or the other. And every now and then, there's some other angle, pro or con. Hmm. So, Dave, what's your position? Well, in this case, I'm glad to know a little bit about the issue. And I think it would be cool if there were primitive life on Mars. But personally, I don't have a strong view. I could change my mind easily with more evidence one way or the other. 
As mentioned, I'm curious. My radar is on. Every now and then I notice some little article that adds to the picture. That's interesting. Hmm. Okay. I, I have a sense of the inquiry stance from your example. But how about advocacy? What would that look like for the same issue? Well, advocacy involves a fairly one-sided position. Maybe someone is a life on Mars enthusiast. So they round up the best evidence pro. They are ready to lay it out for you. They encourage you to take the same viewpoint. And they are not likely to change their mind based on evidence for the opposite position. After all, one could always say, well, there might have been life in some ancient pool at some point. Who knows? Or is the opposite, Paul. Somebody is a life on Mars skeptic, just the reverse of the enthusiast. The skeptic rounds up reasons to be skeptical, urging them on others, and the skeptic is not so likely to change positions. Mm, okay, so I have a sense of the advocacy stance. Dave, our regular listeners know that you and I are fans of good thinking, of reasonableness. It's what many of our podcast episodes are about. So I'm guessing that people might expect you to say that ideally, we always want inquiry because everyone should make it a priority to try to get to the true truth. And strong advocacy just seems too one-sided. Is that where you're coming from? Oh, gosh. I wish it were that simple. The thing is, there are situations where advocacy, at least honest advocacy, is clearly appropriate. For example, it's a lawyer's job to advance the interests of the client, to advocate for the client. The other side of the case, that's the job for the other lawyer. Or here's another example in the same spirit. You are a member of a special interest group, like, say, a union. You want to advance the interests of that group. And of course, there are people on the other side to advance the interests of the opposing group. Now, why do we find these systems of opposing voices? Well, it's simply unrealistic to expect everyone to stand back and view the situation objectively. So let each side have its voices. I see what you mean. Advocacy does seem to have its place sometimes. Actually, here's another kind of example. Sometimes we believe, maybe correctly, that advocating for something, even if it's not yet proven, would do more good than not advocating for it. I'm thinking of the advice to drink 10 glasses of water a day. You know, we know in general that it's good for people to stay well hydrated. But is 10 glasses a day the right number? Who knows? But it's probably better to overshoot in terms of drinking a lot of water than to undershoot it. Ah, uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Also, there can be significant personal motives for advocacy. Oh, say some friend has been accused of some crime. I know the person well, and I don't believe it and want to give my support, so I advocate. Here's another situation. Maybe I'm part of some identity group that expects a certain viewpoint. Pragmatically, it's not so obvious that we should just dismiss the viewpoints of our friends and neighbors in favor of a neutral or contrary position. Realistically, the consequences can be deeply uncomfortable for our lives. I see what you mean. That's true. They can be uncomfortable and, and we could even seem uncaring. 
I wonder if there's a third stance alongside inquiry and advocacy, open-minded neutrality, when it doesn't really make sense to dig in with a complicated inquiry on the one hand, or advocate for some strong position on the other, which is actually sort of like the position that you have about life on Mars. I know you're curious about it, but you're kind of hanging in the middle. You're not investing a lot of energy on either the inquiry or the advocacy front. Actually, Dave, I think you talk about this in the quicksand book, right? You call it relaxed inquiry, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's about avoiding a big near-term effort to figure something out because it doesn't make sense in practical terms. But at the same time, you want to approach it thoughtfully, keeping an eye out for evidence as it shows up as you said, your stance towards thinking about life on Mars is. Yeah, that's right. Relaxed inquiry doesn't mean you're absolutely neutral. You may have a leaning, but you, well, relax on the super confidence front. No need for chest beating. And you relax on the group identity front. Your leaning may align with your group, but you're not declaring that's absolutely inevitable reality. And you're relaxed about time. You don't feel you have to get to a strong, bold position soon because people are supposed to have strong, bold positions. You just keep your eye out for information that comes your way. And maybe you search a little and you see where it goes. The idea of relaxed inquiry is basically not to get stuck in advocacy, which is what seems to happen for a lot of people on a lot of issues. For many issues where I'm curious about, and yeah, maybe have some initial viewpoint, yes, I'm in relaxed inquiry mode. Actually, I think you're a lot like that too for a lot of issues. Hmm. I think you're right. It's true. I am. But circling back for a minute to the idea of reasonable motives for advocacy, I'm thinking we've listed a few, right? For example, one is might be your job to advocate, like the lawyer representing your client. Or pragmatically, there might be issues you want to be careful about because of the importance of group identity. Or another is that the outcomes of an advocacy stance may genuinely be better than an inquiry stance in terms of general outcome. Thinking about the water example, like in advocating for certain health-related behaviors. Okay, so I'm convinced there are some pretty reasonable motives to take an advocacy stance. And I'm guessing, Dave, that the same is true for inquiry. Is that right? Sure. Lots of things motivate inquiry. And let's remember, it's not just some ideal of finding the truth for the sake of truth, although that's one good motive. Or another, curiosity, like the Mars case. Curiosity encourages genuine inquiry, maybe just relaxed inquiry. But hey, if I'm super curious, more serious inquiry. Also, effectiveness. Effectiveness on some practical agenda. That certainly encourages inquiry. You want reliable knowledge toward fixing that gadget, or reliable knowledge toward designing some device, or maintaining your cardiovascular health. Then there's a motive of social responsibility, for instance, in jury trials. On the whole, research suggests that jury members take very seriously the social responsibility to seek a sound judgment. Also, thinking about it, in lots of cases, balanced inquiry is simply part of the job description. 
I'm thinking of research scientists, journalists, historians, people with these kinds of professions. You know, they're surely curious about many issues in their fields, but also they're just showing up and doing the job. When it's your job, inquiry can have a fair amount of drudgery attached to it, I would imagine. All of that said, though, I don't want to understate something that you mentioned earlier, which is the simple power of caring about truth for its own sake as a strong motivator for inquiry. Curiosity and job diligence, they only take you so far. A good deal of human knowledge has been developed over the years through just sheer persistent pursuit of truth for its own sake. Well, let's stand back and take stock. Dave, how would you sum up the big picture so far? Something like this. It's a kind of choice. Seeking the truth in a stand back way, yeah, is great. However, out there in the real world, there are cost-benefit trade-offs between inquiry and advocacy, depending on the issue and depending on your situation. Genuine, deep inquiry tends to be high cost in effort, especially if you don't have that much background knowledge in the area. And this is very common for a lot of issues in the news. Most people don't. As to the benefit side of the cost-benefit balance, that depends a lot on the issue and your situation. Working hard to nail a sound position on some complicated issue floating around the media often just isn't worth it. You may have an opinion, okay, but getting the really right answer isn't going to change how you live your life in the next few years. Okay, so I, I get that, that there can be a high cost to inquiry, but what about the cost-benefit story for advocacy? Here's the important point. Advocacy tends to be low cost in effort outside of professional situations like a lawyer or something. You just say what you think, and you round up a few reasons to support it. And advocacy often has benefits like maintaining status, social relationships, feeling comfortable within one's group, advancing one and one's group's interests, and so on, which can be very important. And remember, just because it's advocacy doesn't mean you're wrong. You might be right. So you're saying that we often tend to slide into advocacy because in cost-benefit terms, advocacy is kind of a better deal, so to speak. It's lower costs and effort, maybe higher social payoffs. Although, as you said, it's not particularly the payoff of reliably getting the issue right all the time. Yeah, that's it. Not that we're standing back and making calculated choices between inquiry and advocacy. It's more that we often have a gut sense of situations and just roll with that. That's the quicksand I write about in the Surfing for Quicksand book. It's just easier to slide into advocacy than to climb into inquiry. Advocacy has its appropriate moments, but it's also a kind of quicksand. It would be good if we could learn to surf on that quicksand rather than just so easily slide into it. Aha. Okay, I get it. That's what your notion of relaxed inquiry is about. It's a surfboard. What you're saying is it's a way of engaging an issue with some curiosity and even having a provisional position on it, but without sinking into a super strong, I have the truth position. Yeah, that's the idea. Thanks. That's great. Okay. Well, Dave, thank you for this glimpse into surfing on quicksand and for all the great thoughts about our main theme, inquiry versus advocacy. 
Why don't we close out with a few thoughts about the learning side of the theme? What can we do about inquiry versus advocacy? How can we even recognize moments of inquiry and advocacy and the choices we make towards one or the other in the midst of, you know, the general clutter of life? I'm thinking we often have viewpoints we don't even know we have. They're just kind of part of the flow. And when viewpoints come our way through friends or the media, how can we keep alert to the form it takes? Are we hearing the results of inquiry or advocacy? And if advocacy, is it honest advocacy or, well, sometimes manipulative? We don't want that. No, we don't. Maybe one place to start is to just practice hard keeping an eye out for viewpoints. We intentionally go looking for them. Maybe we could hone our alertness to viewpoints by doing what you could call a, a viewpoints hunt. So, Dave, if I were to go on a viewpoints hunt, say I did it by scanning my daily newspaper, paying close attention to my media feeds, looking for signs of viewpoints, what would I go looking for? For example, based on what you've told us so far, one thing I might look for is statements or viewpoints that sound simple on the surface, but that would require fairly extensive testing and evidence in order to be true. For example, here's one that comes to mind. It's kind of in the air these days. The statement, electric cars are good for the environment. That's a viewpoint. And on the surface, the viewpoint seems to be true because driving an electric car doesn't produce harmful emissions. But it could be more complicated. What about manufacturing an electric car and in particular manufacturing the batteries that power them? Those processes, those manufacturing processes, which are hidden, would need to be looked at closely. Yeah, that is the basic symptom of a viewpoint, a seemingly simple statement, but one that's not just as easily checked as a matter of fact. Not, for instance, a statement like, New York City is the capital of New York State, which is easily checked. And by the way, it isn't. Albany is the capital of New York. A simple statement that would need considerable evidence and judgment based on the balance of evidence. For instance, as you mentioned, the lesser environmental impact of driving electric cars versus the mixed environmental impact of manufacturing them. Now, I don't know, I've read it still a net positive all in all, but with present manufacturing methods, it's not a slam dunk. No. It's not. Well, okay. So those are some good ideas about how to go on a viewpoints hunt. And of course, as you've already brought out, Dave, once we recognize something as a viewpoint, we want to be thoughtful about the stance we want to take towards it. Does the viewpoint invite inquiry as we were talking about with electric cars? That is, should we dig in and look for balanced evidence for reasons pro and con for important viewpoints that might be missing? On the other hand, do we find ourselves drawn to an advocacy stance? For example, thinking again about the electric car statement, I could imagine taking an advocacy stance, even if the emissions story is a little complicated. But it would be a kind of honest advocacy. I'm not trying to hide the complexity. I just think that the ultimate goal, a cleaner environment, would ultimately be served by continuing to develop electric vehicle technology, even if there are some environmental puzzles in the short term like the high carbon footprint of making car batteries. That sounds good. 
Your mention of honest advocacy calls to mind another kind of hunt that might be worthwhile from a learning point of view for ourselves, friends, family, and students. A hunt for not-so-honest advocacy. Well, let's call it sneaky advocacy. Honest advocacy includes reasons in favor of the advocated position. Fine. The reasons may be one-sided. There may be missing perspectives, but at least it's information you can add to the picture. Not so useful is sneaky advocacy, where the source basically is trying to push your buttons to sell you something or boost some agenda. Ooh, a sneaky advocacy hunt. It sounds intriguing. What would we go hunting for? Put it another way, what would be some symptoms of sneaky advocacy? What should we ourselves or our family members, friends, watch out for? Well, for one thing, there are emotional triggers to watch out for. Fear, anger, moral outrage, um, appeals to status or loss of status, pumping up emotions on an issue in ways that ignore evidence for how frequently some problem actually arises, or to what extent it really touches people's lives, and so on. Often, emotional triggers make something that's hardly a problem at all sound like a huge problem, or make something that isn't really much of an opportunity sound like a big opportunity. Then there's also fake expertise and authority, influencers and celebrities who don't really know that much about the issue or outright fake attribution to what some supposed person says or what people in some groups certainly believe, even though they don't actually at all. Hmm. Here, just to throw another idea on, remembering what you said earlier about the role of group identity, we could hunt for advocacy that takes the form of pushing polarization through group identity, such as when someone says, those other people over there think such and such, but you can't trust them. They're out to get us. And relatedly, we can be alert to advocacy that sweepingly discredits contrary sources, any source that disagrees. None of those newspapers can be trusted. They're all politically biased. Or no way you're going to get the truth from any of those people because it's a conspiracy. They are all in on it. Oh, I have absolutely heard that kind of thing. Well, now that we're bringing these things forward, I think I feel like I could do a sneaky advocacy hunt. These symptoms do truly seem to be out there in much of the media we consume and also, Dave, even in the ways we sometimes talk casually to one another. Well, if you do do a hunt, Shari, let me know what you turn up. I'm always on the hunt for good examples. Ha! Huh. Well... Maybe this is a good moment to round things out. Dave, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about the theme of inquiry versus advocacy. As you know, of course, I read your book and listeners, let me assure you, it's a great read. So I was familiar with some of these ideas, but I really appreciate how much we brought them out to life today. Well, it was a fun conversation. And as usually happens when we get together to discuss things, Shari, I came away with some new ideas. So. Thank you very much for that. Okay, now for more news, tell us what's on tap for our next episode. Sure. Well, we're going to change gears a bit. And our plan right now is to talk about the role of pause in good thinking and also in life more generally. 
By pause, we mean P-A-U-S-E, the thing that happens when we stand back and take a short break, not pause as in animal pause. Well, I think the animal pause could be pretty cool, but let's go with your pause. I'm looking forward to it. We hope everyone out there will join us, and thanks for listening. As always, you can find the Thinkability podcasts on the Project Zero website or on Substack, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, see you later, Shari. See you later, Dave. Hey, and listeners, don't forget to check out Dave's book.